Amen. I'm not sure what it says when uh, the elder walks by and goes, are you sure those are the verses? Are them all the verses? <laughs> Amen. Seems like a lot of a lot of scripture for us to go through this morning, but it, we will, Lord, by Lord's by the Lord's grace, we will indeed make it through these passages because there's some things that are clumped together, and so we're just going to simply allow the text to speak, and we'll gather them together as well. Last Lord's Day morning, as you remember, we were gathered here in the Book of Acts. Holy Writ declared unto you and I that the Lord opened Lydia's heart. Amen. The Bible clearly teaches that was an action of God. That is something that. God did to Lydia. He supernaturally removed, you remember, her obstruction so that she would attend. And uh, that word attend, let me just define it again, is to hold in the mind the things which Paul was speaking, whereby she and her household, as we saw, were saved. The words that Paul was preaching, the word of the Lord, uh, the Lord opened her heart to attend to those things, and she was saved. We were then, if you remember, introduced to another woman who was filled with the spirit of divination, literally the spirit of Pythion, we looked at that last week, who was following the missionaries around, shouting, not just quietly, but shouting unto them that these men are the servants of the Most High God, showing us the way of what? Salvation. And we looked at that, and we saw that God would have no part of that. God isn't sharing his glory with anyone. He's not going to allow some demon to run around and say those sorts of things. So God brought that to an abrupt halt by having Paul just simply drive that evil demon right out of her, amen, and her mouth was quieted. So having done that, we look sort of at the text that, the, 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 you know, her, her, the men who were using her for, uh, if you will, uh, filthy lucre's gain, they drew them in. They, and literally, it's the same word that we see in John there. We didn't have time to go there, but it's the same word when the Father draws. It is, we looked at that a few weeks ago, but that they, they drew Paul and Silas in and uh, accused them of a couple things. First of all, they accused them of, of uh, stirring up the city. They were causing trouble in the city. And uh, second of all, they claimed that Paul and Silas were none other than vagabond Jews who were promoting illegal customs, all of which, brethren, we looked at and saw were what? Untrue. Everything they said and accused them of was completely and totally untrue. But, brethren, all of which the Lord is using, and we will see in our text, used to direct Paul and Silas, amen, to the next lost sheep that was there in Philippi. And again, we glorify God here because everything God does brings glory to him, and he uses it for his, certainly his glorious, his glorious purposes for sure. So let us read together this morning, verses 22, 23, and 24. You see how we're going to do this? We're just going to kind of encapsulate the verses together this morning. And again, this is a, a glorious Holy Ghost, if you will, led omission that is done here to begin with. Look here, if you would, at verse 22, Acts chapter 16. Look at verse number 22. And the multitude rose up together against them, and the magistrates rent off their clothes and commanded to beat them. And when they had laid many stripes upon them, they cast them into prison, charging the jailer to keep them safely, who, having received such a charge, thrust them into the inner prison, and we'll talk about that, and made their feet fast in the stocks. Well, brethren, again, because of these untrue accusations, the magistrates order Paul and Silas to be beaten, 
with rods and then thrown into the local prison, the local jail, not only in, but in the inner portion of the jail, which is a very secure place. There was the prison and then the inner prison where they would take those most hated criminals and stick them inside there to make sure that they would not leave the prison. But brethren, the jailer, who is unaware at this time that he is indeed the direct object of God's holy affections. I want us to get a hold of this, brethren. He is completely unaware of what God is doing and that he is indeed the direct object of God's affections in this text, which is really quite an amazing thing, like all of us have been. Amen? This man is ordered to guard them safely, most diligently, the Bible says, most carefully, so he places the Paul and Silas in the inner prison and fastens their feet in the stocks. And it is here, brethren. We read over these texts sometimes, and I think we, we miss God's working and his, his supernatural working in many of these texts and in these situations. But it is here that our religious affections are once again drawn to the Lord's, uh, if you will, uh, providential ends. In the Roman Empire, you have to understand this, in the Roman Empire, brethren, especially uh, there were two very different laws one for citizens and one for non-citizens. And this is very, very, very amazing as you consider this. Two completely different laws. How are you raising it? <laughs> Not yet a question there. Amen. Uh, one for the citizens. And the Roman citizens had very specific and zealously guarded civil rights. The non-citizens had none. And they were indeed subject to the whims of the magistrates and the crowds. And this is exactly what happens to Paul and Silas. These... Men assume that Paul and Silas were not Roman citizens, which could not be farther from the truth. And again, this again is where the Holy Spirit is the one who's guiding the truth of their Roman citizenship. Amen? Because if God doesn't protect and keep secret their Roman citizenship, what happens would have never happened. Do you understand that? Look at verse number 21 again. They, again, their assumption, their blindness concerning Paul and Silas's citizenship it plays a center role in our text. Look at verse 21. Look what the Bible says there. And teach customs which are not lawful for us to receive, neither do observe being what? Romans. They are completely blind to the truth that Paul and Silas are Romans. So therefore, they feel completely compelled and completely free to take them and toss them right into the prison, to beat them with rods, which a Roman citizen could, could not be done. Look at verses, and we're going to kind of tie this together. You're going to see here the, un the unfolding of this truth in the Holy Spirit's perfect timing. Look at verses 35 through 40. Again, if they would have known beforehand Paul and Silas were Roman citizens, Paul and Silas would have never went into that prison. Amen? And again, what is, the whole, what is God's whole affection here? His whole affection is sending them into the prison to preach the gospel unto one of his lost sheep. Look at verse 35. And when it was day, the magistrate sent the surgeons saying, let those men go. We have done something here that should have never been done because we are now realizing that they are Roman citizens. <laughs> Although God's sovereign hand directed them right into the prison, didn't it? Keeping it completely, if you will, covered from those men and the magistrates. Look at verse 36. And the keeper of the prison told this saying to Paul, and the magistrates have sent to let you go. Now, therefore, depart and go in peace. Yeah, no, that's not how this is going to happen. Because we are Roman citizens. You're not going to toss us in here and just let us walk off in peace. No, here's what's going to happen. But Paul said unto them, 
they have beaten us openly and condemned, being Romans, there it is, and cast us into the prison. And now do they thrust us out privily, privately, secretly, quietly? Nay, verily, but the, let them come themselves and fetch us out. And the surgeons told these words unto the magistrates, and they feared when they heard that they were what? Romans. Do you see God's working hand here? He kept this news completely uh, blind from them, and they stick them in the prison, and as soon as they find out they're Roman citizens, they want them out of the prison. It's an amazing thing, brother. Look here. Look at verse 39. And they came and besought them and brought them out and desired them to depart out of the city. Howard kind of chuckled a little bit because this, brethren, was a dangerous thing that they did. Unknowingly, hid from their own view, their own sight, taking a Roman citizen and doing to Paul and Silas what they did. We need to get them out of here because they themselves now are going to be accountable for what they've done concerning a Roman citizen. And they went out of the prison and entered into the house of Lydia. There we go. So they leave the prison. They head right over to Lydia, whom the Lord earlier in the text has just saved, opened her heart, bringing these Christians together, amen, bringing them together. And so this is where they go. And when they had seen the brethren, they comforted them and departed. Now, again, we see, again, the working of God's hand, the, if you will, the keeping uh, hidden from the surgeons and from the magistrates this very important portion of Scripture. Let me show you what happens later on when Paul, again, he had this unbelievable habit. The Lord had this unbelievable habit of having Paul be imprisoned, amen? And I want you to see here again, he spends a lot of time in prison, Paul does, through the book of Acts, as God is using him again for God's glorious purposes, for the very thing, and we're going to see this but in the end as he writes to the, to the Philippians as we close our message today, you will see how he gives God all the glory for what's taking place here. He references right back to this and says, yes, it was all of God, it was all for his glory, amen? But look here later on in the book of Acts, Look at the, if you will, the order of things concerning this understanding of who Paul is. Look at Acts chapter 22. Let's just look at this together. And we will see here in Acts chapter 16, the order's backwards. They didn't know he was a citizen. As soon as they found out, boom, they wanted to let him go. Here, immediately in the text, we see what happens. Acts chapter 22, look at verse number 24. Look what the Bible says. The chief captain commanded him to be brought into the castle and bade that he should be examined by scourging. <laughs> it's amazing, isn't it? God's glorious preacher that he uses. All he does is spend time in prison. All he does is spend time getting beaten. All he does is spend time getting scourged. But look what happens. He doesn't get scourged this time. Why? Look what the Bible says. That they might know where, uh, wherefore they cried so against him. And as they bound him with thongs, Paul said unto the centurion that stood by, Is it lawful you scourge a man that is a what? A Roman. Hey, can you just take me now and scourge me as a Roman? The Bible says, Is it lawful for a man that is a Roman to be uncondemned? Here's what Paul's talking about. They condemned him. They threw him in prison the first time as God is using that to take him inside the prison to preach the gospel unto his lost sheep. Here he says, Hey, I'm a Roman citizen right now. You can't just put me in prison. You just can't do this to me. Look what happens. And when the centurion heard that, he went and told the chief captain, saying, Take heed what thou doest, for this man is a Roman. Look at verse 27. Then the chief captain came and said to him, Tell me, art thou a Roman? He said, Yea. And the chief captain answered, With the great sum obtained I this freedom. 
Paul said, but I was born, I was free born. Then straightway they departed from him, which should be examined of him. And the chief captain also was afraid after he knew that he was a Roman and because he had bound him. Now, brothers, again, you don't look under every rock, but you see the sovereign hand of God. And just in this little thing, well, we call it a little thing, it's a big thing, as he conceals from uh, the timing of, of Paul and Silas's citizenship, again, to direct them right into the doors of the prison, which is quite, to me, a stunning and amazing thing. Now, brethren, listen, you may go through life, and I'm not putting you in the passage, I'm not putting me in there, but one thing we know for sure, sometimes those little things that happen in your life that you think mean nothing, <laughs> God is using for his glory, for his glorious ends many times. It's a stunning thing to behold, and even here now as we look at, at uh, the Lord directing Paul and Barnabas into the prison. And it's interesting, in 1 Thessalonians, I'll give you the verse, verses 1 and 2, Paul again mentions how he's mistreated here in Philippi, because this is where he's at. In fact, as we get to the end of our text, we're going to see this is something Paul never forgets. And again, he gives God all the glory. In fact, in 1 Thessalonians, he says, we were mistreated there. We were put in prison. We were mistreated. And uh, again, he gives God all the glory for his purposes and his good ends. Now look at verse number 25 of Acts chapter 16. So they're, they're there. They get tossed into prison by the hand of God himself, the Holy Spirit, keeping back that knowledge of their citizenship. Look here, if you would, at verse 25. Look at this glorious response to all of this. Verse 25. Incidentally, I should say that if we had time, you could go look even in the Old Testament. Who was another man who was placed in the stocks? One of God's preachers. Remember the weeping preacher, Jeremiah, down in the muck and mire? But this is what they did. They tortured God's people. But look there at verse 25. And at midnight, Paul and Silas prayed and sang praises unto God, and the prisoners heard them. That's a very important statement that Luke makes there under the inspiration of God. They're singing and praising God, but he says there at the end that the prisoners are listening and hearing this, which, again, is going to come into play just a little bit later, as we're going to see in our text. Even though Paul and Silas had been arrested, condemned without any merit, beaten with rods, and put into the prison... They were filled with joy, as the, Luke says, they prayed, and they praised God for where they are at. Amen? I mean, think of that for a moment. We Americans will be whimpering and crying, and, oh, what is, what's going on? These men are praying and praising God for what he's just done. He's just put him right inside the prison there, not just inside, but in the inner portion of the prison, which is really quite amazing. As I say, I'm always amazed at how little people are amazed. But listen what Luke does here, really what he records for us here, brethren, is th that the Spirit of God indeed strengthened their inner man as they responded not, again, as I said, in a natural way, but in a most supernatural way. It's a stunning thing when you consider that as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. And he takes you through some deep, deep things, persecution, whatever it might be, and in the end, you're filled with joy, the kind of joy that the Lord Jesus spoke of, of course. Amen? Right? He says, my, my, my peace, I give you my joy. He's going to give that. This is what Paul and Barnabas had. They had the Spirit of God living in them, and they were the Spirit of God there. Even and biblical joy has nothing to do, even though, again, as Americans, we think it might with our circumstances, with our situation. 
Biblical joy is not defined as that. Biblical joy is defined as whatever God has for me, I will be joyful in that. It's a stunning thing, but I want you to see here Paul under the inspiration of God. In the book of Ephesians, I love the book of Ephesians. I love that book when we went through it. Such a glorious portion of holy writ. I want you to see this, the what, the who, the where, and the why in the book of Ephesians. And again, this is what Paul is certainly, or Luke is describing for us, the what, the who, the where, and the why. And I want you to see this in one, in the second of Paul's prayers in the book of Ephesians. Look at Ephesians chapter 3 with me, if you would, for just a moment. Keeping in mind the what, the who, the where, and the why. You never had any idea you were going to come this morning. Uh, you thought homeschooling started tomorrow morning at 9 o'clock. You're English, right, right, guys? The English lesson starts about 9 o'clock in the morning. And yet here, Sunday morning, we're going to have an English lesson, the who, what, where, and why. Look at Ephesians chapter 3. In fact, look at verse 13, Galatians, Ephesians chapter 3. I want you to see this. This is the mark of a true a child of God. One who does indeed take joy in every circumstance can sing praises in the night, as we're going to see, as Spurgeon once said. Look there, if you would, the what, who, where, and why. Look at verse number 13. Paul's second prayer for the Christians here at Ephesus. Wherefore, I desire that you faint not at my tribulations for you, which is your glory. For this cause, I bow my knees unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. Listen, why? That he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with what? Might. That's the what. To be strengthened with his might. That's what we're talking about. This is Paul and Silas, who have been beaten and tossed inside the prison, and yet they're in there singing joyously because they've been strengthened with the might of God. That's the what. Who's the who in this text? Look at the next two words. Well, next three words. By his spirit, that's the who. The what is the strength of God. The who is the spirit of God. And the where comes next. Where? The inner man. Not the outer man, not the fleshly man, but the inner man who's able to stand and be joyous in all that God sends, irregardless of whether you've been beaten, put in prison, or whether you <clears throat> think it's been done unjustly. But look at there. There's more to the why. Why? Look at verse 17 that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith. Look at how Paul just lays this beautifully out in this prayer. The what, the who, the where, and the why. Why? That Christ may dwell, the Bible says, in your hearts by faith. And ye being rooted and grounded, what? In love. Verse 18, another why. May be able to comprehend all the saints. What is the breath? Now, brethren, again, you remember when I preached through this, well, some of you weren't here then, but... These next four have everything to do with chapters 1 and 2. What he says concerning these things in chapters 1 and 2, he says there that you may comprehend what? What? The breath. What was the breath in the book of Ephesians? The breath was the teaching that he taught concerning that God would bring Jews and Gentiles together into the church. That's the breath of it all. He's saving Jews and Gentiles. That's what Paul's saying, that you might comprehend the breath of that. How about the length of that, brethren? It is indeed <laughs> the length concerns the eternality of God and his work, what he's doing from eternity to eternity. It's unfathomable for us. 
the depth, of course, goes right to chapter 2. Chapter 2, me and Brother Harrison were just talking about this on Wednesday night. The depth is this, that you were dead in your trespasses and sins. You were in the muck and mire, unable to help yourself. This is what he's talking about, the depth. This is what God has done. And may the Lord help you to comprehend the breadth and the height and the depth. Well, we get to the height next, of course. Again, he speaks of this concerning what, we've, what God has done for you and I concerning this, and that you were depth down in your sin, but you've been raised, what? You've been raised up with Christ in the heavenly where? Places. This is what Paul is saying. This is what it's referring to. He's not just referring to anything. He's saying, look what God has done. Look at, if you will, the breadth, the length, the depth, the height of what he has done. Look at verse 19. There's another why. And to know the love of Christ, which passeth knowledge, that ye might be filled with all the fullness of God. And brothers, we know how the charismatics take this verse completely out of no, it doesn't mean what they mean. It means that you may be complete in Christ. And finally, brethren, look. This is what Paul and Silas, this is, the, this is the very thought in their minds. Look how it closes. God's going to, he's going to do all of these things. And he has done all these things in the inner man. Look at verse number 20. Now unto him that is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think. Yeah, Paul and Silas are sitting in prison and they know that God's purposes and his glory is going to be brought through all of this. Everything they could ever ask or think, God can do exceedingly, don't you love those two words together? Exceedingly abundantly more. It's a stunning thing. And again, not in a charismatic way, but in his glorious purposes and his work in our own lives. That's what we're talking about. According to what? The power that worketh in us. And again, how can you not close a prayer by giving glory to Christ? Unto him be glory in the church by Jesus Christ throughout all ages, world without end. Amen. I like what Spurgeon said concerning Paul and Silas sitting in prison. Now remember, it's going to be about midnight here soon. Listen to what Spurgeon says. It is easy to sing when we can read the notes by daylight. But the skillful singer is he who can sing when there is not a ray of light to be read by. Songs in the night come only from God. They are not in the power of men. And brethren, this is exactly what Luke records. That Paul and Silas, who were Roman citizens, the Spirit keeps that kept secret from them. They're thrown in, they're beaten, all of these things, and yet all they can do is sing in the night. Because it is God who is giving them the power to do that. Amen. This is really what we see again. The, the working of God. The supernatural working of God in the hearts of his people. Now look back there at Acts chapter 16. And again we're going to read some verses together. <clears throat> Acts chapter 16 will be 26, 27, and 28. And you must read them together because again... The supernatural work of God continues in the jail. And again, this is it. Uh, <clears throat> Howard, not to bring you up, but I think of you a lot when I read texts like this. Here's a man. Can I, is it okay, Howard? I didn't ask him. But you think of a man who was raised without a father. I mean, I'm, not, I'm just saying. <laughs> I still remember this, not to get sidetracked, but... <clears throat> Howard's father used to tell him, you're not my kid. You're not my son. 
And believe you me, the first time I met him, when we left the hospital room, I said, you are definitely his son. <laughs> they look like little mini-me's. A stunning thing. But to be treated that way, a father who's been in prison all of his life, and where's the Lord get a hold of Howard? <laughs> Where does the Lord begin to get a hold of you, Howard? But none other than the Burley County Jail or Grand Forks, wherever you were at. And there was something in him. This, the Lord wakened him. All he wanted was, can I, <clears throat> can I get a copy of the scriptures? And a man prayed for him, Lord, a simple prayer. We were in church history this morning, and I just, it's, it's confounding to me how confusing men make the gospel. They confuse it. There's so much confusion, even way back. And they do it on purpose. And I remember the prayer that that man prayed for Howard. Lord, reveal yourself to him. That simple. Not a bunch of confusion, not a bunch of gibbly goop and gibbly gop and you know, tomfoolery and skullduggery. Simply reveal yourself to him, and it's a stunning thing. We see that here, the supernatural work of God here in our text. It's quite amazing to a man who is sitting, uh, who is a keeper of the jail, Look at how God's supernatural work continues in the jail. Look there at verse 26. <laughs> this earthquake, brethren, is very unique. It does things that no other earthquake does. And if you think God didn't send it, and God didn't use this thing to get, again, to, to get uh, uh, Paul and Silas right where he wanted them, you are insane. This earthquake is unique. Look at what it does, verse 26. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's bands were loosed. I'm telling you, brethren, there's not an earthquake that I know of that loosed everyone's bands, except this one. I know a lot of earthquakes I read in Scripture where men are dumped into the pit. It covers them up, but I see this, brethren, as a sovereign earthquake sent by God, again, for His glorious purposes, because no other earthquake just simply allows the chains to fall off. This one does. This is unique, sent by God himself. Look there, if you would, at verse number, uh, where was I at? Oh, 27. Again, a very important, we see God. in it, it limiting, and again, I, I called it, I was studying this out, and God's limiting of this earthquake, because it is limited in so many ways. The providential timing of this earthquake is a stunning thing. It's limited in its scope in so many ways. Look at here, verse 27. We may not realize it, but this is God limiting the effects of this earthquake upon his, if you will, his holy affection. Look at verse 27. And the keeper of the prison, awakening out of his sleep and seeing the prison doors open, he drew out his sword and would have killed himself, supposing that the prisoners had fled Look at verse 27, how God limits it. What prison do you know where the fetters fall off, the chains fall off, all the doors are opened, and the prisoners simply stay there? It doesn't happen, brethren. There is something miraculous about this that takes place because God has his object of affection right here. The Philippian jailer. Look at what Paul says in verse 28. But Paul cried with a loud voice saying, do thyself no harm, for we are all here. Now, brethren, <laughs> the prisoners, 
as he, again, continues his supernatural work in the jail, in the prison. The prisoners were listening, as we saw earlier in the text, with pleasure as to a beautiful music. And again, that's literally what that phrase means. And the prisoners heard them. If you go look that up, and it's not Greek class this morning, but you go look it up, and it literally means that the prisoners were sitting there listening as to beautiful music. Listening to Paul and Silas, what? Sing praises unto the Lord. They're sitting here hearing this. Well, they've just been beaten. Amazing, stunning thing. This earthquake comes at midnight. God sends it a most unique earthquake, as I said. And I like how one pastor termed it. This earthquake is no seismological quirk. It is not. As we look at the, at the details of it, our religious affections are drawn to its providential timing, its divine placement, and again, its limited scope. The earthquake is limited in scope by God to this particular prison in that city. <laughs> it's the prison that shook. You understand that. It was the foundation of the prison that shook. It was very limited right there. Not only was, did the prison shake, but brethren, the building was not destroyed. You ever watched an earthquake when a building is shaken like that? It, it crumbles to the ground. It just absolutely falls into a million pieces, which this would have done without God's sovereign hand there. I, I promise you that. The Bible says the foundations were shaken, and God keeps the build, even the building from being destroyed. Amazing, isn't it? It was merely shaken. Now, as I said, this divine earthquake is unique in that it specifically causes all the doors of the prison to open and all the prisoners' chains to fall off. <laughs> Brethren, if you don't think that's a miracle of God, again... You have a very low view of God. It's amazing, isn't it? How can one, I ask myself, and I don't want to get sidetracked, but I do, <clears throat> things pop into my head. <laughs> There's not a lot of space up there anyway, but sometimes it pops in there. My question is, how in the world, brethren, insist brethren, that's a term for all of us, how can one trust when the Lord says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved? But we can't read this text and go, that was a miracle of God. The doors were open, the chains fell off. And you know what? The prisoners all stayed where they were to be. Why is that such a big deal? Why do you think that was God protecting his object of affections in this jailhouse, in this prison? Why? Why is that such a big deal? It's limited in its scope, and after all the restraints and that were holding the prisoners captive are removed, not one of them flees for their freedom. Look at verse 28 again. Paul cried with a loud voice and sang, Do thyself no harm, for we are all here. Why is that such a big statement? Because Roman law demanded. Let me say this again. <laughs> this is what's so glorious about what God does. You know, I hear people all the time saying, oh, I should have witnessed to that guy. You know, now he's going to go to hell. No, you should have witnessed to him. But I have news for you. If he is a lost sheep of God, the next person will come and witness to them, and they will be saved. It's about God. Can I say that again? It's about what God is doing. It's a stunning thing, isn't it? I, I can't say that enough, brethren. Can God be glorified enough for what he does? No, no, it's no different here. It's an amazing thing. We're all here. 
Roman law demanded that if a guard lost a single prisoner, just one, he was killed immediately. That would make you what? That would make you take your prisoners into the inner circle, into the inner prison. It would make you put them in stocks fast so that they don't escape if something happens. And yet all the fetters are gone. All the doors are open. And there they all stand. Why? Because again, the Philippian jailer and his family, as we're going to see, but particularly here, is indeed God's glorious affection at this time. He is the lost sheep whom God will save. It will happen. It's guaranteed to happen. Look at here, if you would. We already saw this one. Look at Acts chapter 12. Let me show you what happens when, uh, when God's glorious hand is just allowing it to go. When, and again, I'm not trying to be mean or unkind or anything. I'm saying this is what happens. Look at Acts chapter 12. When I said Roman law demands it, Roman law demands it, that you are killed immediately if you lose one prisoner. And we saw that back here, didn't we, in Romans chapter 12, or Revelation, or Revelation, I'm all over the place, Acts chapter 12. Look at verse number 18 there, if you would. Remember, I called them the keystone cops. They're trying to hang on to Peter. They didn't know which end was up. <laughs> but listen, brethren, listen to this. Verse number 18. Now soon it was day, there was no small stir among the soldiers, what was become of Peter. And when Herod sought for him and found him not, he examined the keepers and commanded that they should be what? Put to death. Immediately. One prisoner got away and they're commanded they are put to death immediately. Here all the prisoners stay. None of them leave, not one. They all stay stationary, holding up to see what God is going to be doing Next, it is a quite an amazing thing. God spares the Philippians jailer's life here. There is no question about it. And if you doubt that, again, can I just say it? You have a low view of God. God spared his lost sheep life by making sure that no one left. Everybody stays. Everybody sits still. Now, this really leads us to one of the greatest, the greatest, Questions that one could ever ask. Whether you are a child, whether you are a woman or a man. This again, we see the glorious working of God in all of this. Look there, if you would, at Acts chapter 16. Look at verses 29 and 30. All of this, I'm going to kill myself. Don't do it. We're all here. Look at verse 29. Then he called for a light and sprang in and came trembling and fell down before Paul and Silas and brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Wow. Again, brethren, it is here where we see God's supernatural ends brought forth by the effects of his supernatural means. Everything that happened beforehand brings us to this point. This is where God has been going the whole time, right here, to have a man who was dead in his sins and could care less just, just minutes before. You know who he feared? Minutes before this took place and this happened, he feared who? He feared the Romans. Now we see here that 
His, his whole, uh, if you will, countenance has changed. It's an amazing thing, brethren, when you look at this and see this. The miraculous quaking of the prison foundation brings forth this miraculous fear and trembling of the Philippian jailer, if you will, in his boots. That, weird, that word trembling literally means to quiver all over your body. He is completely filled with fear because of what has just taken place and what he has just seen. The jailer who was moments earlier feared only the Roman retribution is awakened from his spiritually dead man that he is, his spiritually dead state. Listen, fearing now only the retribution of God, indicated by his question, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Now, brethren, there are many things we could say about this. This question is a question that precedes every true conversion. One cannot be saved without asking the question, how must I be saved? It's not possible. If you don't know you're lost, you don't need to be saved, right? The Philippian jailer moments before had no idea he was lost. Now God has awakened him to understand that I am lost. And in order, when you're lost, you want to be what? Saved. This is the question he asked. It is, brethren, indeed, the greatest question that any man, woman, or child could ever ask. Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Which engenders from Paul. <laughs> See, <clears throat> when God is drawing, when the Spirit of God is regenerating, amen, and the mind that was in enmity with God has now been clearly opened as he opened Lydia's heart, and your heart has been opened. I mean, we, we, we sing that song, don't we? The cross, to who is a one who is a true believer, has a what? A glorious attraction to me. This is proof that God is the one that's unveiling the heart. Otherwise, the cross is what? It's foolishness. It's stupidity. Until God does what only God can do. He opens the heart and you look and go, that cross has a, has a strange attraction to me suddenly. It's amazing, brother. It really is when you understand that. Look at verse 31. This, this question that's asked, that every person should ask, every man, woman, and child, what must I do to be saved, is the sweetest music that will ever sink into one's ears or heart whom God is truly calling. Not the fake stuff. Can I sidetrack? Can I go down a rabbit hole, Diana, for a moment? Not the fake altar calls you see. Not at all. When you have people come down to the front of a church altar after you've sang a few songs and they can't tell you what the gospel of Jesus Christ is, he's not calling. Brethren, there is so much of this. There is so much of this these false conversions that are being, if you will, confirmed by false preachers and false teachers. I like what A.W. Pink said many times. And again, this can happen in a snap of a finger. It can happen over a period of time. These things, God can do whatever he's going to do in his perfect timing. But generally, brethren, when you realize that you are a sinner condemned to hell, 
and rightly so. And someone comes along and says, and you're, you, the, the Spirit of God awakens you, and you're sitting there, and you're going, well, what must I do to be saved? And these sweet sounds come into your ears. Look at how it engenders these, this beautiful music into the ears of the one. Anyways, Pink said, it's much better to have one when the music comes into their ears, not to be skipping down the aisle. Just all, oh, look at what the joyous thing. It's better to have them weeping and as they come, realizing what God has just done for them. Realizing it. But the sweet music that comes into this man's ears genders this most holy, beautiful response. Look at verse 31. And they said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved in thy house. That is sweet, sweet music. As Paul just is very biblical. Now let me say this, brethren. This is not easy believism. Let me make that clear. This is not easy believism by any stretch of the imagination. As many evangelicals teach today. Just give Jesus a nod. This is not giving Jesus a nod. This is not coming over to the Jesus booth. Not by any stretch of the imagination. What Luke is writing here, brethren, encapsulates, if you will, the whole of the gospel. He is not just simply saying, nod to Jesus, do this, you know, give Jesus your five bucks or whatever it is. No, this is an actual conversion where God is working and draws and does all of the work here in this man's heart. It's an amazing. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved is a summary confession, if you will, of the Christian faith. It is, as my little brain put it, Luke's shorthand statement on the saving faith as a whole. It's a stunning thing. Now, do we have any cattle farmers in here? I don't know. Some of us have been around there a lot. Luke has used this term several times already in the book of Acts. We don't have time to go look, but go look it up. This is what we would call, brethren, a part representing the whole. So if I said to you, uh, yeah, Wendy and I have 100 head of cattle out on our place out here, what would you think? Would you say to yourself, well, what, did Mike and Wendy have a bunch of heads of cattle hanging all over? No, you would say what? There's a hundred bodies, whole cattle, wandering around on our property out there, probably killing our trees. This is what Luke is saying. He's not saying just simply nod, acknowledge, oh yeah, I believe. Hey, listen, the demons believe, don't they? The demons believe who Jesus is. That is not a saving faith. They acknowledge. They nod their heads. They say things like this, oh, Lord, what would you have to do with me? Go get those pigs over there, those swines over here. And, oh, Lord, we know that you are the Holy One of Israel. They know that, but they're not saved. This is not a nod to Jesus. This is indeed the saving, miraculous, supernatural work of God in the heart and mind of a man who had no idea that he was the center of God's affection. Just like you and just like me, many of us who lived like hellions all of our lives until the Lord came and sought us out, we know what this is saying. We understand what this means. We really do. It's an amazing thing. In fact, if you look there at verse 32, 
and 33, I want you to see this. This was not just a simple ascent. This was not just, oh, you know, just grab that stake, tell the devil you believe back here, have the pastor sign your Bible and you're good. Never. Never do you see that anywhere in Scripture, not once. You know what I called it, Brother Harrison? You remember what I called it Wednesday night? It's Baptist voodooism. It's Baptist voodoo. Look at what it says. 32 and 33, look at there. And they spake unto him, what? The word of the Lord. They were preaching God's word to them. They weren't just simply, oh, I, I, whatever. Come forward, come down the aisle, come to Jesus' aisle, come up here, get some Jesus gold out of the ceiling, do this stuff. No, no. They were preaching the word to him. Again, the word is always involved. The word of God, brethren, is always involved in the conversion of a man, of a woman, or a child. Always. And they said, verse 32, uh, And they spake unto him the word of the Lord, and to all that were in his house. Now, I know this may rub some of our Presbyterian brothers the wrong way, and I don't mean to do that. But I want you to notice they, they spoke to him the word of the Lord, and to all that were in his house. Everybody was listening. Verse 33, And they took him the same hour of the night, and washed their stripes, and was baptized, he, in all his straight way. So what do we see here in our text, brother? And again, <laughs> again, being a Baptist, being the Baptist that I am, I love my, I love my brothers and sisters, uh, Brother Sproul and some of these, I love them to death. One thing you'll notice in this text is that all heard and all responded. All heard and all responded. When your little infant in mommy's arm you're rocking little Johnny, and, man, and a man is preaching. Your little six-month-old baby isn't responding to nothing. But here they did. They all heard. They all responded in faith. And what do we teach here, brother? Believer's baptism. We, I'm called the, the big baptizer, right? When I pastored that church up in Turtle Lake, they, they were little baptizers. But they were fundamental in everything. They didn't teach it was salvific. They thought it was covenantal, and I'm okay with that. And we don't teach it here either. We teach one who believes on the Lord Jesus Christ and is saved and then responds in faith to that in believer's baptism. Now, again, can I just say this? Look here, and we need to finish. Look at 1 Corinthians with me, if you would. This is not easy believism. Never has been, never will be. Look at here, this glorious Paul himself preaching to us the effects of the cross on two different kinds of people. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Look there, if you would, at verse 17. A very familiar portion of Scripture to us, but I want you to see this, brethren, is the effect of the cross. This is the, the unchanging effect. This is the effect that the cross has on everyone. You know, let me say that again. This is the effect that the cross has on everyone. Whether you're sitting here this morning and you're lost or whether you're saved, this is the effect the cross has. There's never any neutrality. I love people that run, oh, we're just neutral. Until you're saved or lost, you know, you're neutral. No, you're not. You're not. And this is the effect. Look here, if you would, at verse number 17. 
Look at verse 18 as well. For Christ sent me not to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of none effect. Listen. For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish, what? Foolishness. But unto us who are saved, there's that word again, those of us who are saved, it is the power of God. And again, brethren, this is the effect of the preaching of the cross. This is precisely what we're seeing. A man is being preached to by a preacher, and God is working, the Holy Spirit of God is working, and that man comes. He believes on the Lord Jesus Christ. Not in a simplistic way, if you will. Not in an easy kind of way. But you see the cross. Now continue on there. Look at verse 21. For after that, in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to what? To save them that believe. There the cross is being preached. And the word believe there again is an all-encompassing gospel. What did Paul say in 1 Corinthians 15? (laughs) There's this gospel that saves. It's the death the burial and resurrection. That, again, is what he says. Look here again, just down just a little bit farther, uh, in, in verse number um, 21. Oh, I read that. For, Jew, for the uh, Jews require a sign, and the Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified unto the Jews a stumbling block, and unto the Greeks foolishness. But unto them which are called, <laughs> both Jews and Greeks, you know that's an, effect, that's an effectual call. <laughs> Those who are called. That's effectual. Both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. This is the ever-glorious effects that Paul said it had on him. The preaching of the cross had a great effect on him. The gospel had a great effect. That's why this is not easy believism, because easy believism says, you're not at Jesus and there's no change. It cannot be. It cannot be. If you've nodded at Jesus and you haven't changed, then you are lost just as you are lost. It's very simple. It's very clear. In fact, look at Paul, and I need to finish up. Look at 1 Timothy. Look what he says. Again, a man who was an enemy of God, as we all are, before he saves us. Look at 1 Timothy chapter 1. I just want to read these solemn words to us. And I want you to notice the word pattern. I want you to notice the word pattern. Paul was a pattern. Paul was a pattern of a man who was lost, who was saved for real. And this is the pattern you're going to see. Look at verse number 12. And I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who hath enabled me, for that he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry, who was before a blasphemer and a persecutor and injurious. I mean... Paul's laying out what he was before. But I obtained what? Mercy. Because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. Verse 14, we got mercy. Verse 14, grace pops up. And the grace of the Lord was exceedingly abundant with faith and love, which is in Christ Jesus. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation, that Jesus Christ came into the world to what? Save. There's that word again. What must I do to be saved? Well, you've got to trust the gospel. You've got to believe in what the gospel says, that it might save you. That came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. Now listen, he's not done. Verse 16, how be it for this cause I obtained mercy. There, there it is again, grace and mercy. Paul is just always reveal, re- reverting back to God's grace and his mercy. That in me first, Christ Jesus might show forth all long suffering. 
For a what? For a pattern. This is how men are before Christ. This is how men are after Christ. Look what he says. For a pattern to them which should hereafter believe on him to everlasting. Paul just gives us a glorious pattern. Here's how I was. This is before Christ came, before I was on the road to Damascus. I was all of these things. And then after I met Christ, the pattern is there's a glorious change. Always. Always. One could not come to Christ and not be changed. That's not possible. Only in Baptist voodoo theology is that possible. Not in Scripture ever. <laughs> Isn't it funny how you can say, it's, it's never in Scripture. And those who say they're Bible believers say, oh, yeah, 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 but, it, but, it's, but that's what it is. No, no, it's not. That's not what it is. It's not there. It isn't found. And therefore, please, Baptist brethren, please stop. Please stop the nonsense. Please. It's amazing. A pattern of God's saving effects are seen on Paul on, and on all who believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me close with Paul's inspired summation of his God-ordained imprisonment at Philippi. And I want us to see this together, and we'll close together as these glorious words come into our ears. Look at Philippians chapter 1. Let us read these together. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians chapter 1. Paul never forgot. He's writing from a Roman prison to the church at Philippi. And these are his words. These are his instructions. These are the things that he looks at, and he saw what God was doing now, and he attributes it all to the glory of God. Look at verse number 12. But I would ye should understand, brethren, that the things which happened unto me have fallen out rather unto the furtherance of the what? Of the gospel. Hey, Philippi, remember when I was tossed in prison there, uh, me and Silas? I was tossed in there. They were unaware that I was a Roman citizen. God put me in there, and then he opened the doors, and he did all these things, and here it is. It was up for the furtherance of the gospel. That's a servant of Christ. Look at verse 13. So that my bonds in Christ are manifest in all the what? The palace and in all other places. Brethren, this, what we read in the book of Acts, just had ripple effects clean on out from the very lowest of the low to the very highest of the high, even unto the palace. Look how he closes Philippians, and we'll be finished. Philippians chapter 4. Not just any old palace, but Caesar's palace. Isn't that great? God had lost sheep in Caesar's palace. Amazing. And because of what Paul went through and because of how God used him for his glorious ends. Look at here as we close. Look at verse number 20. Now unto God and our Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Salute every saint in Christ Jesus. The brethren which are with me greet you. All the saints salute you, chiefly they that are aware of Caesar's household. Amazing, brethren. Look at that. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. Again, brethren, let me close with a practical point this morning. You, indeed, may be here this morning completely unaware at this time that you are indeed the object of God's affections. Isn't that glorious? Think of that for a moment. God knows his sheep. You may be that and be completely unaware of it. And it's an amazing thing when God reveals that to you. 
it really draws out his gloriousness. That God would think upon us. That God would send his son to die, to shed his blood, to be buried, to, be, to raise again from the dead on our behalf. You may be that this morning. You may be one completely unaware, just as the Philippian jailer was completely unaware that he was indeed, and this is the gloriousness of the preaching of the gospel, you don't know. That's why we preach the word, isn't it? You may indeed be the next one who will ask in truth, sirs, what must I do to be saved? You may indeed be that one that's why we, as a church and as a Christian, must be ever faithful, ever faithful to the Word of God, ever faithful to His ways, ever faithful to what He is doing, always and forever. Amen? No cheap tricks of men. Only the work of God will prevail. And this is what we must always, always, always keep our eyes upon. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, we, again, are so thankful for the work that you are doing 